0: If you haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks, we are in the book of Habakkuk, and we're actually finishing up the second chapter of Habakkuk uh, today. And it's a quite interesting uh, passage because if, if if you haven't been here, Habakkuk has complained to God, as we all have, right? And Habakkuk says, "God, what are you doing? Why are you letting these Babylonians, these vicious and and violent people, these vile this vile empire, take us over?" Uh, and God responds to him, as we saw last week, one, telling him, listen, the righteous will live by faith. But he promises judgment. But the answer that we're going to look at is the full answer today that he gives Habakkuk. And he gives it, and he writes um, in a very, a very poetic response to Habakkuk. Uh, it starts off like this. Habakkuk 2.6 says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? So God is teaching them A song meant to taunt the uh, the Babylonians, a taunt the this this wicked empire. Now think about why you taunt, right? If you are ever taunting, uh, think about why you do it, right? You do it because you are assured of victory, right? We don't taunt when we know we're going to lose. My my family is a board game family. We love board games. Play a lot of board games. I love Life and Monopoly. And when I play with my kids, I, I taught the entire time. The, the entire time. And it's because I know I'm going to win because I'm also the banker, and that helps in those type of games. But like, that's when we taught, right? We taught when we know victory is assured, and that is what we see here. God's giving them this. Now, this seems crazy for the people of Judah. They've been encircled. They've been given into the hands of the Babylonians, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I'm sure they're thinking, how on earth are we to be taunting this empire? We're encircled. But the Lord wanted them to know it's not over. It's not over. And the taunting the Lord is giving is about the Babylonians' destruction. So through this song, he's teaching them that they're going to be destroyed, but also we can be reminded that we too can taunt the wicked world. For like the Babylonians, it too will be destroyed. And sometimes we need a reminder that it's not over. This entire song, taunting, should be seen in what the Lord told Habakkuk last week, which is the righteous will live by faith. So the Lord is going to give in this song all the ways that the unrighteous are going to die by. He says, for you, the righteous will live by faith. Now let me give you the reasons in which the Babylonians, the wicked world, will die. But I want us to remember as we discuss each of these issues that God has with the world, I want us to remember in the backdrop that we are a people that live by faith. Now, what I'm about to say, some of you are going to be very upset with me, uh, you're, some of you are going to be tempted to walk out, um, but I have five points. And I, I, I know, I know. Some of you are like, listen, we know you don't get to preach all that often, Jeremy, but that doesn't mean you get to hold us hostage. I promise. Right? The God, our Lord makes it, makes it, gets to the point with these passages, so I, I will, too, get to the point. But here are our five points. Death by greed, death by pride, death by violence, death by shame, and death by idolatry. So let us go and pray to our Lord. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We do thank you that we can be a people that live by faith, that we can confess it and that we know it's true. Lord, I ask that this morning we can set aside distractions and we can look upon your word and to see what it is that makes you angry and what that makes you pour out your wrath on a people. And out of a love for you, we can avoid such things. God, we thank you and praise you and ask that you use your word to train us up in righteousness, to correct us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we see the Babylonians first die by greed. Let's look back at Habakkuk 2, 6-8. It says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtor suddenly arise and those awake... Who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. Right? This wicked world, this wicked empire, the Babylonians have shown their greed, right? They could never have enough. And God gave them the desires of their own heart, which was this wicked yearning, sinful yearning for wealth that could not be satisfied. And God makes it clear that soon those who had those who they had shown great cruelty to would rise up against them. The same God who allowed, who we saw in the previous chapter, allowed this empire to grow. The Lord is going to use and ensure their opposition would increase and plunder what gave the Babylonians great security, right? The Babylonians prayed to their nets, to their dragnets, as we read last week, making sacrifices to their nets, worshiping their nets because their money, their wealth, that is where they found their security. And the more they got, the more secure they felt, the more confident they felt, And so the Lord is going to pull the rug out from beneath them. He's going to crush their financial institutions. He's going to show them their greed. Brings them nothing but an abundance of despair. God mocks their greed and relentless pursuit of wealth at all costs, this is done by, we see that the Lord's going to do this by turning the tables, right? We look back at verse 7. It says, Will not your debtor suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble. Then you will be spoiled for them. Right, you took, you took, you took. And now you, there's a promise that they will be drained dry and those who you plundered will enjoy the product of your greed. Now, I want you to listen please very carefully to me. God is not condemning wealth, but simply greed. Uh, It is not more righteous to be poor. Wealth is a blessing, that's a a grace that's given to some. And in fact, uh, I think oftentimes we equate wealthy with greedy, and that's not how Scripture defines these things. There are many people who are in poverty who suffer from greed. And if we equate those two things, then those of us who are not wealthy have a blind spot to a sin that we fall victim to all too often. Greed. Now, often, greed is a love of money. To the point where it exists for our own security, our own exaltation, and self-obsessive tendencies And it's used not to worship the Lord, but rather to fuel worship for ourselves. But notice this is not the only reason God is mad at the Babylonians in the sense of how they're using and conducting themselves with their money. Look at verse 6. This is fascinating. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads him with pledges. Now, pledges is a loan with interest. God was angry at the sin of taking advantage of the poor and making a profit through loans. Now, loans are a common part of life for the Christian, especially in the West, right? But when we look to the law to understand who God is, when we look to God's law to understand what He hates and what He loves, we can see exactly what God thinks about loans with interests. Exodus 22 25 says, if you lend money to any of my people uh, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Deuteronomy twenty three nineteen, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. It is the wicked world who would exploit the needs of others. And as as we, as God's people, we are called to be generous. Generous in giving, generous in loaning. Jesus himself actually tells us to not seek interest when giving loans to our brothers and sisters in the kingdom. Not to expect anything in return. And some of us may need to repent of this. For God's word and the standard on the matter has not changed. Christians, we no doubt struggle with the mindset of the Babylonians. Right? There is a pull towards greed in us due to our sinful desires that is fueled by a culture that promotes jealousy and coveting and a fleeting happiness brought about by stuff. The constant pursuit of of more without a recognition towards heaven of the beauty of his grace and without a desire to use one's wealth for our family now or our future family that we may never meet or even our church family god's kingdom the truth is greed enslaves us and its promises are like a temptress whose promises are never fulfilled So we need to be aware that we do not become the greedy Christian who refuses to give to the mission, who refuses to be generous with his wealth, to be wise with his wealth, and even generous in his loaning. Again, let me stress, loans or the love of money have nothing to do with being wealthy. Rather... What the Lord warns us of is a heart that has a posture of worship towards money. Matthew 6, 24, right? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is not a condemnation of wealth. This is a condemnation of the love of money, which everyone is capable of. And it's what the... the Babylonians displayed so well their love of money, their obsession for it. It consumed their minds and their motives. It consumed their tasks day to day. God's people should be weary. For it's the Babylonians die by their greed. But we are called to be a people who live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 says, right, the righteous shall live by his faith. Greed, right, refuses to be satisfied. Whereas the one who lives by faith, right, we see whatever wealth we have as a grace, content and blessed, an undeserving blessing, wherever we may find ourselves. The one who lives by faith trusts the Lord, and submit to the Lord in all of our financial dealings. Secondly, we see death by pride. Now, it is never fun to have your pride exposed and to um, have to be humbled, uh, especially publicly. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Uh, there was a, an incident that stands out to me where it was a bit humbling, um, we were on a plane. We were, it was uh, Will and myself and I think a couple others that we were going to. Uh, it was an Acts 29 event that we were going to down in Florida. And you know how it is uh, for you introverts, right? If you're like me, you see people loaning on a plane. You have an empty seat beside you and you're like, oh, who am I going to have to talk to? Oh. Will is like super giddy and excited. He's like, someone stuck with me for two hours. They have to talk to me the whole time. To so me, I'm like watching people load on the plane. And this is a true story. I'm not making this up. This, this, um, I'm watching people's eyes. You know, they, they look past my seat number. I'm like, yes. Um, this college-age girl, she's looking, and her, her eyes meet my row. She looks over, and she looks down. And she goes, you got to be kidding me. Through the, yells it through the plane. And, of course, what happens is everyone turns around to look at me. Almost to be like, I get it. Yeah, I understand. That's a justifiable response. I, in, in my day-to-day life, I have a bit of a homeless quality about me, the way I dress. I realize that. I didn't think I looked that bad that day. But either way, there was, it was pretty humiliating, right? As this stranger looks at me, at my mug, and is felt it needed to scream throughout the plane, and, and to the point where this I don't want to say nice old lady, because I don't know if this is nice, but this old lady looks at her like sympathy's like, sweetheart, I'll switch with you. <laughs> like she's taking one for the team, holding on to her mace in case things go bad. Anyways. This is therapeutic for me, I appreciate it. But this is a very public humiliation, right? It was it was humiliating. But that type of public humiliation compale. I mean, it's not even the same ballpark of what? that Babylonians are going to experience. He says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. For you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The Babylonians saw themselves as unconquerable, overconfident, Right? Their walls were thick and big, and they had, had displayed and created their cities to be impossible to overtake, to conquer. Now, Habakkuk most likely did not live to see the downfall of Babylon. But the Lord, who gives us the promise, I'm going to destroy these people, then records for us that he destroyed the people. In fact, we see it in the book of Daniel, and in, in, in when the Persians and the Chaldeans invade, look at Daniel five twenty-two through thirty-three. He says, "But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of Heaven." Now, if you don't know this part of the story, this is when that. That hand appeared, right? And the hand was writing on, the writing was on the wall. And it was telling the king of Babylon, your kingdom is going to fall and it's going to fall tonight. And watch what he does with this warning. That your kingdom's going to fall, it's falling tonight, you're going to die. Verse 29 of Daniel 5, Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Which doesn't matter when your kingdom's falling that evening in a few hours. But his pride blinded him. They feared no one. They mocked the Lord, even in that response to God saying, I'm destroying you, to be like, all right, well, let's plan for the future. It's a mockery of the power that God has has, their pride would not permit humility. And though they thought themselves untouchable, the Lord would crush them with his mighty hand. And we see the pride that God hates. And it, by the way, it's not in like a, a pride in a job well done. It's not in being proud of your son and daughter for doing something good or accomplishing something they've worked hard to. That's not what's being discussed here. The pride is one that is all-consuming. It consumes your thoughts with yourselves. It's pride that causes one to think and live as if God does not exist. It's an unwillingness to humble yourself and to see exactly how dependent on the Lord for life and salvation we actually are. security, right? The Babylonians looked to their abilities and they looked to their skills and they trusted themselves supremely. And they'll die by that pride. But the righteous will live by faith. And I hope you see how faith and sinful pride cannot coexist. The faith of the righteous understands the need for humility It understands our lack of ability and it refocuses our hearts and minds on the Lord because we can't really control anything. I have no power over my heart beating. It beats whether I want it to or not or the blood coursing through my veins. I can try to hold my breath. That may last for a little bit. But I'll start breathing again let alone over my own sin and and being able to appease the wrath that it's owed. I have no control over any of it. So we trust in the God who promises forgiveness and reconciliation to himself. We must not devolve into the prideful Christian, unwilling to submit, unwilling to take counsel, unwilling to recognize that any ministry that any of us are involved in Is not powered by my skill. That I can't talk someone into the kingdom of God. I can't make someone repent of sin. Our success is not alone a simple manifestation of personal greatness. The prideful Christian refuses discipleship, correction, repentance, admission of guilt. But we, the righteous, are called to live by faith. A faith that understands our brokenness and trusts Him to complete it. A faith that recognizes that we need to be grown and the Lord alone gives that growth. A faith that God will do as He promises, which is to bless the humble. Next we see the death by violence. Habakkuk 2, 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The Babylonians were a brutal, brutal people. They had some faves as it pertained to torturing people. Uh, they really liked the old burn people to live trick. They did that one a lot. Um, they were they actually they did a lot of they would specifically men would mutilate men in the most sensitive areas. Um, their favorites of torturing was by peeling. They would make slits at the wrists and they would peel back the skin, tearing the tissue uh, that connects it to the muscle. And sometimes when they were done with their peeling. They would then impale people, mocking them in the process. It was through this needless and cruel violence that they swallowed up their enemies. They enacted cruel slavery to build for themselves buildings and projects meant to really just show how amazing they were exalt themselves. But like money, I want to make it clear to you. Violence is not inherently bad. There is a time for violence, like at award shows, as an example. (laughs) Seriously, though, I hope you can read in this part when it says, who is it giving credit for bringing fire upon the city? The Lord Himself. God is not a pacifist, and neither should you be. There are times in a Christian life where violence is, in fact, the answer. But that violence is not meant to dishonor, right? It's meant to defend husbands, fathers. You were called to physically defend your family from physical harm, to not care for our families, whether that's financial or physical. Scripture says it's worse worse than an unbeliever. You who represent Christ in your home, how evil and wicked it would be for us not to defend them against those who wish to do them harm, both spiritually and physically. Obviously, the violence by the Babylonian state is not the violence that is being encouraged by God. In Romans 13, Scripture, and in other places, this is just an example, Scripture gives the state the right to the sword, which means the government has the right to inflict physical punishment. But there's a stipulation on that. They are to promote righteousness and punish unrighteousness. That is when they are to use the sword. The Babylonian government is a perversion of this, where they sought to encourage unrighteousness and punish the righteous. Scripture is clear that they committed a violation of the duty that was given to them as God's deacon, which is what government is called. And they failed to punish the unrighteous, which means they heaped on them God's judgment. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In short, all the knowledge of God's love and anger will be someday universally seen. And all the created order will both see it and marvel at it what we need to recognize and remember is, as a people of faith, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, I hope that you can understand the difference between vengeance and defending your family. But oftentimes, there are many of us who've suffered at the hands of violent men, cruel women, cruel parents, People who are entrusted to protect us and, and govern us and love us, but rather they abused. But we who are declared righteous, who live by faith, remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Living by faith is trusting that God's vengeance is better than gossiping in order, in order to hurt the heart of one that we're, who's hurt us. It's better than schemes to bring pain to someone. It allows us to captivate our thoughts and bring them to Christ, who does, in fact, promise to enact a vengeance on those who are his enemy, of himself and to his bride, the church. Next, we see death by shame, verses 15 through 16 Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink and pour out your wrath and make them drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. God exposes the dishonor that's heaped upon the captives. And there's two ways to read this, these couple verses. We can take it quite literally, which is the Babylonians... Uh, apparently are against the conscience of many making people drink to the point of drunkenness uh, and, then, and then stripping them down naked uh, and mocking them in their nakedness. Uh, this isn't a crazy historical idea. This, has happened, this actually happens to Jews uh, when they are conquered by the Greeks much later in history. Uh, they would, the Greeks were known for stripping them down naked and, and mocking them as they participated in Olympic Games. Or you can interpret this poetically. Which is, these people, these Babylonians, created schemes to exploit these people. And it's the idea that they were constantly reminding them that they had been defeated. It was them, it was the Babylonians, constantly rubbing their nose in it, day after day after day. Either way, the Babylonians' heart was to dishonor and shame them. And what does he say? The cup in the, right, in the, in the Lord's right hand. That, that's symbolic for his wrath. You see it all throughout Scripture. It's going to come around to you. Again, God is going to cause this great reversal. He says, the dishonor you reaped, you will sow. Look at verse 17 of Habakkuk, chapter 2. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Their dishonor went beyond people. It even went to the land they had acquired. And by the way, this is not God like invoking some sort of Green New Deal. or you know, He's not becoming an environmentalist here. Rather, God is showing them that you dishonored man and all that you acquired. Everything you did was clothed in shame. And so the Babylonians will meet their death due to their sinful shame. And Christians, as those who live by faith, we are not to have the mindset of the Babylonians seeking to dishonor, but rather to show honor. That is, first and foremost, to God but also to our brothers and sisters. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to compete as brothers and sisters against one another, except in the area of, of honor. Right? Scripture says we're to outdo one another in honor. That means we're to strive not to dishonor, but to love and serve in a way that reflects the gospel, in a way that shows that we care deeply about one another. The one who lives by faith does not have to exalt themselves by shaming others. Rather, they can trust that the Lord has surrounded us with a family, with other Christians in Christ for our growth. So we honor those who, who we are in mission with because we trust the one. Who put us together. And finally, we see a death by idolatry. It says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold. It's overlaid with gold and silver. And there's no breath at all in it. The Babylonians reject the creator and they worship the creation. A creation crafted by their own hands. And by the way, this is not an accident. This is what scripture says the unregenerate do. That those that they are made to worship, but because they're dead, they are blind and they cannot see. And so they create for them a God who is manageable. A God that fits into their way of living. As we see, these idols teach nothing. They know nothing. It simply imparts what its little creator desires it to do. But what sticks out to me is inherently the things that make up these idols, they're not bad. There's nothing wrong with a plank of wood or metal. In fact, silver and gold are pretty nice. But in the hands of the idol worshiper, they become objects of wrath, exposing the heart of the wicked. When we were... My wife and I, we went to Taiwan many years ago. Um, and once, something that struck out to me, uh, especially we were in this little town outside of Taipei, which was the capital, um, was the gaudy areas of worship. I mean, everything in gold. Beautiful structures, beautiful structures meant for idol worship. All the many gods that existed They were were gorgeous. And in this little town outside of Taipei, there was real poverty. There was real suffering. In fact, what's crazy to me is that they would take uh, their money, what little money they had, they would take some of it, and they would go and they would buy fake money with it. And they would take this fake money and they would burn the fake money so that their ancestors would have something to spend, I guess, in like the eternal gift shop. It was so sad. Is that all they're sacrificing? It's literally dead. There's nothing, there's no breath in it at all. It could not teach, it was not alive, and it was all in vain. And when God is telling the Babylonians here that these gods, or rather planks of wood and metal, he's being very clear with them, and he's being clear with us too. Your idols will not protect you. They will not advocate for you. All they will do is expose you to the fury of God's wrath. And it's not to your profit, but rather... To your detriment, as the Babylonians die by idolatry. Only if it were true that we as Christians didn't struggle with idolatry. I hope you see the warning, though. And I hope you see the severity in which God takes idol worship. And I realize I don't know anyone who crafts little images in this church or little metal objects for the, for the point of worship, but we do make idols. How often do we make a theological preference? This is just an example into a prerequisite for worship. I can't worship if that's the guy who's teaching today. I can't worship if that's the lady who's singing that song. I can't worship in that building It's not aesthetically nice enough for me. It's kind of dark, sometimes cold. If I'm going to worship, I really want a pleasant atmosphere. That's what I need. Nice, nice, comfortable atmosphere. I want you to draw your eyes to Habakkuk, whose nation has been taken over, who is in despair, who's lost everything, yet he is worshiping, not because of what he has, but because of a promise that the righteous shall live by faith. And that sin will end. It wasn't pleasant for him. It wasn't preferable to be in his position. But true worship has to be a priority. And you've heard the quote a million times. But John Calvin, right, he once said, our heart is an idol factory. How true a statement that is. So... Church, we need to watch and reflect and be careful that we are not creating and exalting, finding security, hope, and comfort in things that don't deserve it that aren't owed it. We need to make sure that we're not making idols out of pastors or celebrity pastors. They're just men. We're just men who will fail you eventually, who oftentimes will let you down. We're not perfect. We can make an idol out of work, out of politics, out of relationships, out of status, out of comfort. Oh, and nothing bad into themselves. But when these things become the source of our deepest cravings, and when we're moved, our world seems to fall and crash, you should know you have an idol. Think about What do you go to for comfort, for a feeling of security and importance. If it's not the Lord, then what you might find is an idol that you've crafted. So what does Scripture say about these idols? Isaiah 2, 17-18, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. When our idols are gone, we'll be exposed. And as the Lord is telling the Babylonians, the price for idolatry is death. This is why the righteous live by faith. Because we know that we have broken every commandment. We have broken all of God's law. And we've broken one of them, then we know that we're guilty of idolatry somewhere. This is why the righteous must live by faith. Because we know we're all guilty of the same sins as the Babylonians. But we have a promise in the, of grace. We have faith in the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. But listen to the end of Habakkuk here, of chapter 2. He says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In contrast to the deaf and to the mute idols that we just saw, we see that God is very much alive in his holy temple. And the Lord assures Habakkuk that he will act on behalf of his people for the Lord's glory and our good. But God reminds Habakkuk that the only appropriate response is a silent reverence. For there is nothing the Babylonians can say or do to remove the coming judgment. But for the righteous who live by faith, there's nothing that needs to be said or done, for it is finished. So we can confidently, silently watch as death passes over us and praise the righteous anger of God as we've been shown mercy to the praise of His glorious grace.